The following sermon is provided to you by Antioch Presbyterian Church with great thanks to Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Taylor, South Carolina. Due to a technical difficulty, we did not capture the audio recording of this past Lord's Day morning sermon. And so we're reproducing this message delivered a number of years ago at Greenville Seminary's chapel in its stead. May God bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Life presents us with awful dilemmas and suffering. A few years ago in Houston, I got a phone call and met a man from Nigeria, and he was moving to Houston. He was a godly Christian man. He was going to be in our church, and I was very excited. And tell me what Sunday he'd be there with his family. That Sunday came, and Passed and they didn't show up. In the middle of the week, I discovered that as they were driving from Dallas to Houston, the car went across a 50-foot-wide median, hit them head-on, and killed the entire family. Each of you can add horror tales to these few. Inexplicable sufferings of this life. Now, the problem for us is not... Why do bad things happen to bad people? We recognize from the Bible that God does exercise judgment in this life as well as in eternity. And it's surely not the question, why do bad things happen to good people? But the question is, why do bad things happen to godly people? These inexplicable things. Well, this is in part what the book of Job answers for us, as it sketches for us the ways of God in such a profound manner. You see, these are questions that you have to answer as parents with your children, sometimes in the dark night in your own heart. And they're questions that each of you will have to answer as pastors. And then there's the innumerable theological questions that arise as well, in terms of not just purpose, but uh, causes. What is the role of Satan? What is the role of God? I remember the interesting antithesis when C.S., uh, when uh, Schaefer was um, dying with cancer. And Dr. Koop said, you know, we had different ways of looking at his illness. He said Francis Schaefer described his illness as an attack of Satan. Koop said, I prefer to think of this as the sovereign purpose of God. Was one right and the other wrong? Well, no, not according to the book of Job. But Job helps us understand the relationship of the work of Satan to the great purposes of God. It helps us begin to unfold those uh, more difficult passages when it says that the evil spirit was sent from the Lord to afflict Saul. Or a lying spirit to go into the false prophets. It helps you and me learn to look at our own difficulties. As some of you have heard me share, that one of the most profound lessons in my own life in the book of Job is a certain patience with life and not nearly the preoccupation with second causes and fault. For it's the Lord who gives and the Lord who takes away. See Him in and all 
working through everything. That's part of the message and lesson of Job. And actually, the book of Job is a book of pastoral theology. It will teach us many correct truths about God and also warn us against the improper application of those truths. It helps us to learn how to deal with people as well as with their problems. And in the book of Job, truly we find a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Job was a righteous man, exemplary in his conduct, as we shall deal with that this morning, who suffered as he did, he went from exaltation to humiliation to exaltation. And we see him as a clear picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one who took off his garments and descended into the very depths of humiliation that he might lift us up in exaltation. It is the true explanation of the character and sovereignty of God. And we finish the book of Job. We have a keener love for and faith in our God. We'll each be bringing his own set of problems even now to the book as we also will anticipate those days when we will have to deal with others. So, I trust that God will make it a rich uh, study for us, and that we shall be led continually to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this morning we want to look just at the first verse of this book, a book that is included as part of the wisdom literature because it helps us to Uh, think God's thoughts after him. But we don't know who the author was. Its vocabulary and setting, uh, not only is the setting patriarchal, as I shall show you more in a moment, but uh, its vocabulary as well. And perhaps it was written by Job himself, by Elihu, the prophet of God, or by Moses. There are those that suggest it was written in the Salamic period. Uh, I prefer the earlier dating, but again, the scripture is quiet with respect to the immediate author. So we believe it's been given to us by divine inspiration. Well, in the first verse, what God is doing is showing us the character of this man, which makes it all the more inexplicable and wondrous what happens to him. But as God says before us, the character of this man, God has shown us what each of us ought to be, men and women. What you as children must aspire to be as Christian boys and girls. And so this morning we look at Job as the example of genuine piety. We'll consider two things. That he is a genuine example, and he is a godly example. Now, I start by saying he's a genuine example, because I want to simply lay out before you a little bit of the evidence that we're talking about a real person here. We're not talking about a fable, a myth, a morality tale to teach the theology. 
We're talking about a man, a flesh and blood man who lived and worked, ate and slept, loved a wife and children, and loved God. It's quite clear. The text itself comes to us in a very straightforward. I love the beginning. This beginning is it rivals that of that great opening line. I once at a farm in Africa. That's a good beginning. But this there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away. From evil. There was a man in the land of us. A real man, you see. Now, we can discern something about this person as a real man as we compare Scripture with Scripture. We know that God himself, in Ezekiel chapter 14, refers to Job along with uh, Noah and Daniel, who we know to be, have been real men. So God himself tells us that Job is a real man. And the Apostle James, in James chapter 5, verse 11, sets him before us as an example, which is our biblical warrant, in part for what we're doing this morning. Looking at Job as a genuine example of piety. So the Bible sets him for us straightforwardly as a man. It goes on to say that he was the greatest man in the East. The rest of Scripture sets him forth, God himself testifying that he is a man. Well, he was a man that lived in the land of Uz. The time of Job, as I said, was patriarchal. We know this for a number of reasons. There's no reference in Job to uh, Israel or to the Old Testament Scriptures. There's no genealogy that relates to Job. In fact, Job flashes across the horizon of Scripture like Melchizedek. He's here and he's gone. Biblically, he has no beginning or end. But he's set here in this patriarchal period, divorced from uh, Israel per se, for she was not yet in existence. Probably a descendant of Keturah or of Esau. He lived in the land of Uz. So another reason that we recognize the patriarchal nature of this is he uses the patriarchal name of God, Shaddai. Uh, he lived in the land of Uz, which is also called of the people, the men of the east. Now, as the rest of Scripture deals with Uz, again, it seems to settle down toward the area, toward Edom. Um, but understand that it was not a desert area. It was a very fertile area. We know that because he had 500 yoke of oxen. He was not just a husbandman. He was a farmer and a very prosperous farmer. He lived in a very fertile area and he lived not on the farm but in the city. So he lived in a very highly civilized area uh, in the east. Also would place it more to the south simply because of, as we'll look in a few weeks, of the location from which his friends would come. They mostly came from that area as well. So there was a man named Job in the land of Uz, a fertile area to the east of what would become Israel, 
a civilized area and an area in which in his family and the families of these other men, there was yet the remnant of biblical piety. Another reason that we know it was a patriarchal period was that Job was the priest in his household, which functioned until the descendants of Levi were appointed to be priest. So he was a real man, lived in a real house in a real city. He was a real farmer. And he's given to us here as a genuine and real example. Well, having established in this brief survey the genuineness, the reality of the man named Job, look at his godly character that is to us an example. For the text, and God himself reiterates it in verse 8, tells us four things about Job. He was blameless, upright, he feared God, and he turned away from evil. As a blameless man, God is telling us that Job was a man of moral integrity, of wholeness, and of completion. The word is similar to the word that's used by Paul. It's translated uh, mature or perfect. He was a spiritually mature man whose heart was whole before the Lord. He was not a hypocrite. He didn't have glaring areas of character or spiritual deficiencies. No, he was a man who lived before God and walked with integrity according to the light of revelation that he had received. His heart was whole and sincere in his life before God. And the next two descriptions... Described in the actions of that heart with respect to men and with respect to God. Next thing we're told about Job is that he was upright. Now we know from a place like Proverbs chapter 11 that uh, uprightness is a synonym for righteous. So that they are placed together in Proverbs 11 where we're told that the upright man is a righteous man. By the blessing, well, let's see. Change Bibles here. The righteous, well, the, first off, that righteous, the uprightness is an expression of blamelessness. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall in his own wickedness. And then the Righteous of the upright will deliver him, and the righteous is delivered from trouble. It's interesting that this chapter in Proverbs is a description of the righteous man, whom it also describes as the upright man. So uprightness is righteousness. Now, this is a very important concept for us to begin to get in mind. It's something that Matthew and I have been discussing a little bit. When the Bible says he was upright. It's not talking about his justification. You cannot divorce his blamelessness or his uprightness from his justification. Job, we know, 
could only be accepted to God in the same way that you and I are, and that is by imputed righteousness through justification. So that his faith in the promises of God and the Savior to come were the foundation of his relationship. But his blameless character came not from his justification, it came from his regeneration. Now, you cannot divorce the two. From regeneration comes the faith that takes hold of Christ. For justification brings us into union with Christ. But from that same generation comes in this transformation of the internal man so that the heart is whole before God. Not immediately, but by training. And out of a blameless heart then comes righteous acts or the acts of the upright man. Now, I'm saying this because there is an error today that is rightly criticized by federal vision people. Now, their, their solutions are horrendous. But again, the church has created the climate in which their error breeds. And that is, we are failing to enunciate the fact that in addition to the necessity of imputed righteousness, there is a necessity of inherent righteousness in every Christian. You can't separate the two. The larger catechism shows us how the one relates to the other. But we have been too careless in applying a verse like, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags, there's none that do good, not even one, to the regenerate. Those are statements of law applied to the unregenerate and the hypocrite within the church. Not to the regenerate. And thus our Savior says we are to what? We are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is he talking, are we to hunger and thirst for justification? No, he's talking to the justified. And justification is a place in which we stand, we've been made to stand, it's not a process. We can't have more of it. But we can and must have more of the righteousness of sanctification. And so Job's very important to us as a blameless man. Same terminology used of Noah in Genesis 6-9, Abraham in Genesis 17-1. And it must be the goal then of the Christian to be a righteous man, woman, child, upright. Which means to be living from the heart consistently according to the law of God. We won't take the time this morning, but in Job 29 and 31, his righteous acts are recorded for us as he, as he gives testimony to how he handled himself in the community. As he, he, he says in verse 14 of chapter 20, I put on righteousness and it clothes me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was, I was eyes to the blind, feet to the lame, father to the needy. Chapter 31, he goes into great detail in terms of his behavior, his, his purity. My heart has, if my heart's been enticed by a woman or I've lurked at my neighbor's doorway, may my wife grind for another and let others kneel down over her. For that would be a lustful crime. If I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves and they file a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? If I've kept 
the poor from their desire, have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the orphan has not shared it. I've put my confidence in gold and call fine gold my trust. If I've gloated because my wealth was great and because my hand had secured so much. I've looked at the sun when it shone or the moon going in splendor and my heart became secretly enticed and my hand threw a kiss from my mouth. That too would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for I would have denied God. Thus he goes on in the description testimony of his own conscience. Do you see that his uprightness was a probity? A, a life that's outward acts express the blameless character of the heart by living consistently with the law of God, particularly in his human relationships. Now, toward God as well. But the next phrase brings us right into his relationship with God, and that is he feared God. Now, we need to distinguish when they're put together the fearing of God from the blameless heart. The blameless heart obviously fears God. It's right before God. But now he's talking about his faith in and reverence and love for God. A holy affection that caused him to order his life in God's sight, again, according to God's law. An awareness that he would give an answer to God as he testifies there in in chapter 31. Awareness that he must live life according to God's standards and demands. He must approach God consistent with God's character and not by his own imagination or will. The fear of God then that's the beginning of all wisdom and knowledge was Job's response to God as he had a limited revelation of God and yet he loved God and he came to God in the way that he had been instructed. And he was fearful then of offending God. And again, when you see the testimony of his conscience, it's quite clear that um, he had sought to order his life in the presence of God so as not to bring offense to God. That led him to the fourth thing, and that is that he turned away, constantly turned away from evil. You see, Job's character, the character of the righteous man, always will turn away from evil. In Proverbs 16, verse 6, By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. So Job says it was a subtle practice with him, or the writer says with respect to Job, and God says of him, that he eschewed evil. He turned away from evil. He sought to avoid all sin of thought. And so he says in chapter 31 that he made a covenant with his eyes so as not to look with lust upon a woman. Of action. He would not associate with sinners in their sinful acts. Or walk in patterns and behavior of unbelief and disobedience. That he had a, a hatred of sin that would cause him to flee it. He would have practiced in what we call mortification of the flesh. 
He would have cut off occasions of sin and temptation. He would not have placed himself into situations that he knew he himself would be tempted to fall and be enticed to sin. Now, as we look at this brief survey of Job's character as an example, we then are called to the reality of who we ought to be in Christ Jesus. As I said, Job was these things because he was trusting Christ. He didn't trust his works for his acceptance with God. But as Abraham, when God said to him, walk before me and be blameless, Job recognized because he's been saved by God's grace, like Abraham, like Noah, that he was to walk before God and be blameless. So his example for us is the example of how a regenerate and justified person ought to live. And we have, as I said, the biblical warrant for taking him as an example because that's how he's set before us. In James chapter 5, verse 11. Now we recognize when we look at a person like Job that he was a sinner. And we'll see him in his own book, Sin Against God. In sins of ignorance and fallibility and misjudgments and self-vindication. And we know that if we didn't have those particulars that he still would be a sinner. He himself aware of the sin of His family would make regular sacrifices. And there's only one of whom it may be said absolutely perfectly. He's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is our righteousness Because he himself is perfectly blameless and upright, fearing God and away from righteousness. His righteousness is given to us in that imputation. And we are perfect in God's sight, legally, because of him. But it's also because of him that we may be and must aspire to be like Job. Because Job shows us what Christ's will is for the one whom he has justified. Now, when we read about Job, an upright man, blameless, fearing God, turned away from evil, we think he must have been in the category by himself. And who am I to think that I could ever aspire to, let alone attain, such a standing, or such a testimony from God. It's God who says that Job is these things. Well, this will shock you. You have no excuse not to surpass Job in sanctification. No excuse whatsoever. And why is that? You have a completed revelation it's doubtful that Job had a iota of Scripture. He had the oral revelation of God that had been kept alive and faithful in the faithful families. You have the entire Word of God. 
with the revelation, with the promises, with the threats, with the clarity of commandment and doctrine. Job lived but in the shadows and anticipation of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You live in the full noon of the completed work of the Savior. Job then lived in a way external to the work of Christ. Yes, the Spirit of Christ would work in him and sanctify him as he regenerated him. But in some unique manner, the Spirit of the risen Christ indwells you as the Spirit of the risen Christ. And thus the power that raised Christ from the dead is the power that is throbbing in you spiritually. And Paul says in Romans 6 that you have died in Christ and been raised with Christ. Do you see what you possess that was all foreign to Job? The Bible says it's God's will for you that you be holy. And the Savior tells you when you pray according to God's will, He hears you and answers you. And so my friends, when I set Job before you and me this morning as an example for righteousness, I've not set the bar up here where our Savior is. To which we constantly are to strive, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. But here the bar is set at the level that God would have each of us to be. You men and women as godly Christian men and women. God wants it to be said of you that you are upright, blameless, that you fear God and you turn away from evil. God wants you young girls to desire that above everything else. He wants you to desire to be like Job, that you might be like the Lord Jesus Christ. We who are ministers and those of you who aspire to the ministry, this is the type of man that God is going to use and bless. He did bless Job. He did hedge him in. And though he temporarily removed that hedge, he again hedged him in. And if you want to know the blessing of God on your ministry and the glory of God in your life, then it must be your passion to be like Job. Don't sit here today and think, that's impossible. No. You're denying the sufficiency of Scripture and the power of the Holy Spirit. Each of us needs to respond to this. Yes. This is my passion. God, make me like this. That others and you will say of me, of my days here on this earth. That he was an upright man. She was an upright woman. Blameless. Fearing God. Turning away from evil. May God give that to us. It will be a generation that shall truly exhibit the power of the perfect work of Christ. Be a generation that then, in a sense,
takes this world by force. Because we labor and live in the power of a holy God. With a holy message that is proclaimed from holy lives. Job is a genuine example of godliness. You and I, in Christ Jesus, can be superior to Job in our sanctification. May God grant that to each one of us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.